Odds are you want to improve, but are you sacrificing your vision by not working hard enough? Does reaching success mean that you've sacrificed happiness along the way to get there? And should we derive innate value from our work or from within? So join us today on Subject Matter, where we discuss what happens when countries embrace ambition, not just as ideal, but as a way of life. What German shepherd breeding monks can teach us about happiness and how you can practically assess where your drive comes from and how to channel that for even greater growth. Welcome, listeners, to Subject Matter. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to another episode of Subject Matter. We are on episode five. Tom, you, can you believe that we are already a third of the way through season one? I can't believe it. And as the subject that matter have grown from zero to one to five, I look forward to growing from five to 15 and beyond. It's going to be a lot of fun. And listeners, we have a lot of surprises in store for you. And we're going to jump into today's debate, which is ambition versus happiness, friends or foes. And we're going to start off by looking at ambition. And very simply, ambition, I think you can define as wanting to excel in one's field, regardless of getting recognized. And this is something that is polar opposite to the ego and to pride. This is wanting to do something for the sake of it. But let's be real here. Mental health is a very sensitive topic. And Tom and I want to treat it as such on this podcast. And that's why I'm starting today with a story about a country. And this is what happens when ambition doesn't just play an important part in your life, but it is your life. And some of you might have guessed the country that I'm talking about, and that is Japan. And specifically, we're going to look at Japanese work culture. And in Japanese work culture, work is placed upon a mighty pedestal. Because to be seen as giving anything less than 110% is just downright dishonest and disappointing. In Japan, the stigma behind work has fueled a highly driven and highly ambitious culture. And so you have some of the hardest working people on the planet. But this has come at a very high cost. And I'm going to share some stats from Japan with you. Number one, workers are entitled to 20 days leave a year, but currently 35% of them don't take a single day off. Number two, nearly a quarter of Japanese companies have employees working more than 80 hours overtime a month. And to make that real for you, a five-day week working nine to five is 40 hours. Just imagine doubling a regular work week. Number three, 12% of Japanese companies have employees working over 100 hours a week. And over 80 hours is the threshold upon which someone becomes at risk of death. Oh boy, Ben. I think I've been at the risk of death the last year and a half. (laughs) (laughs) And with a week to go till lunchbox, you know that boy is only getting two hours sleep a night. But it's only a temporary thing. Fear not. And this problem in Japan has become so bad that government offices have actually resorted to turning the lights off at 7 p.m. just to force workers to go home. And in fact, the Japanese even have a term for this sad phenomenon, and that is karoshi, which describes a death that has been attributed to overworking. 
Now, what we're seeing here in Japan is really a magnification of a concept that we see in the West. This is not so distant to what we're going through. This fetishization of hustling, that it's cool to work 12, 14 hour days. I'm looking at you, Tom Worcester, by the way. It's not cool. It's bad for us, for our happiness and for our overall mental health. This subject matter is a debate as always. And you'll have to decide where to draw the line on your relationship with happiness and ambition. But we're going to start off today with a caveat by saying, please don't overwork yourself. Please don't put in those crazy hours week on week, year after year, because ambition is great. It's the fuel that moves us forward in many cases. But if you're doing it without a finish line, and it's not just for a set product or a product launch, but it's your life, then as we've seen from Japan, when it's played out to its extreme, ambition is not just hampering your success, it's downright dangerous. Listen, Ben, I agree that overambition is a real problem and overworking specifically is one too. And we don't want you listeners getting ideas, mark our words. Many people see ambition and happiness as counterweights. Now, I personally see them as the same. You believe in what you do, therefore you do what you believe. Leave it to Ben to leap immediately to a hyper-ambitious country of Japan, and rather, let's instead travel to a happy one. That tiny country located in Europe is Denmark. It was ranked first among 156 countries surveyed for the World Happiness Report. And there have been plenty of successful Danes, like the actor Mads Mikkelsen, the tennis player Caroline Wozniacki, shout out Caroline, or companies like Carlsberg. But on the world stage, with all due respect to any Danes listening, Denmark is relatively a tiny player, especially by capita. So how is this pint-sized nation such a powerhouse of happiness? And the answer lies in the Danish philosophy, in which you find happiness from values beyond material success. They pride themselves on gender equality. They look after their own by giving underprivileged members of society plentiful welfare. And there's high levels of trust for both their fellow citizens and their government. Just like the Japanese have karoshi, the Danish too have their own word, huga. And it can't be translated, but some define huga as a special way of being together in a relaxed atmosphere. It's those moments in the day when you get an authentic little pause for yourself and the people who are around you. So what can we learn from the Danes? And I think there's one big lesson here, and that is to evaluate our happiness from intrinsic motivations rather than extrinsic ones. Let's take a step back. An extrinsic motivation, performing an activity to earn a reward or avoid a punishment, working a $10 an hour job to get that $10, or going to class to avoid failing out. On the other side of that is intrinsic reward, performing an activity for its own sake and personal rewards. This could be volunteering because it's fulfilling. This could be building a product you believe in because it's solving a real problem. The behavior itself becomes its own reward. And to Ben's remark earlier about my working 100-hour weeks, it's that type of intrinsic motivation that keeps that sustainable. And it's this that we see so much of in Denmark. They don't look after their citizens and immigrants with so much care because of some external incentive. They do it because it's the right thing to do. And as a result, they feel extremely happy. So this is all well and good for a country, but how can we apply these motivators to our very own lives? Now, the truth is, if you're listening, listener, then you're probably pretty ambitious already. If you perform an activity for the sake of doing it, then that's an intrinsic motivator. But always there will be growth and improvement 
into the equation. So the question is, how can we identify these areas? Well, as Tom has enlightened us, extrinsic motivation always comes from the outside. Compete in this test to win a scholarship. Play this football game to win the trophy. But ultimately, as much as you might try, those factors are really out of your control. But the one thing you always have total control over is yourself. So to have a better grasp on why we're doing what we're doing, let's do an exercise now to align our intrinsic motivators and to have a better handle on why we do what we do. So this is an exercise you can carry out yourself. All you'll need is a pen and paper or pull up a clear sheet on your laptop and let's jump into it. So first of all, identify which tasks in your week you spend a significant portion of your time doing. Are you in sales and find yourself on the phone constantly closing deals? Not a bad problem to have. Maybe you're a developer writing code all the time. Whatever it is, get these actions clearly down onto paper. And this doesn't have to be what your primary job is as well. You might find yourself coming up with commuting a lot of the time or cooking or exercising. This isn't necessarily tasks you enjoy. Remember, this can be tasks you don't enjoy as well. So now that we've got all of the tasks down that are taking up time in our week, for each one, ask yourself, why am I performing this action? What is the outcome here? And this is where we need to split it, listeners, into extrinsic versus intrinsic. Are you doing these tasks because you enjoy doing them or because you're working towards some kind of reward? Now, let's be clear here. It's not a clear-cut case of intrinsic being better than extrinsic. And in fact, extrinsic motivators are excellent for getting you to do something that you might not want to do otherwise, like offering an incentive if you study for a test. But that cannot compete long-term with the greater alignment that comes when your intrinsic motivators are in motion. And in this case, ambition isn't sacrificed, it's compounded. You're far more likely to put in the extra hours needed to get from good to great at anything, whether it's writing, coding, or cooking, if you love the task for what it is, a process, and not just working towards the end result. But Ben, there is a little bit of a problem in our argument here. So far, all we've talked about are countries and concepts. We're not a statistic, stereotype, or a number in a spreadsheet. The two of us, as well as our audience listening to subject matter, are just that, real people. So, for a moment, let's dive into an example of a real person who changed the relationship between his own intrinsic and extrinsic motivators. This person is Jesse Itzler. Shout out to our mutual friend, Amanda McCrae, for both giving us Jesse's book, which inspired this segment, Living with Monks. Thank you, Amanda. Now, Make no mistake, Jesse Isler is ambitious. He was the co-founder of Marquee Jet, one of the largest private jet card companies in the world. He was an early partner in Zico Coconut Water and currently a co-owner of the NBA's Atlanta Hawks. By all means, his intrinsic motivations are aligned with his extrinsic, but it wasn't always this way. He's been a rapper, a record label owner, and an author, but he decided to do something radical and put his ambitions on hold for a while. He turned his phone off, he left his family behind, and he traveled to upstate New York to live with monks for 15 days. Now, Jesse was an interesting character because he joined the very non-traditional group. It was a calm group of monks who raised German shepherds in which he found a solitude. For recreation, 
they pray, they think, they read, and they have an amazing collection of books, predominantly fiction. They have one TV, one bathroom, and they watch one hour of TV on Sunday night once a week. This is a world of limits. Tommy, I hate to think what would happen to your precious Instagram story if you ever found yourself in that monastery. Uh, it would be an amazing hour per week on Sunday night, Ben. <laughs> now, on paper, this may seem like a civilized person nightmare, especially in a world of hyper-technology and communication that happens not just by the minute, but by the second. But Jesse Itzler had been exposed to a world free of extrinsic motivators. He soon realized that there were some big positives that come when living so free of the outside world and so free of exterior ambition. He could finally focus on what really mattered to him. Another interesting part to this was that for Jesse, all the decisions were taken away from him. You eat when you're told to. You eat what you're told to. You go to service when you are told to. You shower once. Now, the average person makes 35,000 decisions in a day. We have a finite amount of willpower every single day that we have to use and maximize, but then we use up. Now, if we use them all up, then we're liable to decision fatigue. And if we're constantly deciding what to work towards, how to work towards it, and how to make those actions happen, that is going to drain us even faster. So when your mental bandwidth is freed up, we have all of this energy. You become super clear. Nobody can get to you, schedule your appointments. You turn your isolation into your ultimate advantage. Jesse Itzler stumbled into a world free of external stimulus, free of extrinsic motivators, and these monks were plugged into a good life just for the sake of living a good life. Jesse was able to benefit immensely from taking himself out of the busy environment of his daily life and rather into a place of serenity and clarity where he could finally hear himself think in an overcrowded world. In other words, he left his ambition at the door to find inner happiness. But the interesting thing here is that Jesse can even go a step further because his experience doesn't leave him once he has left the monastery. His new enlightened perspective comes with him all the way home to Atlanta, and he can use that with his wife, kids, and friends. And I've no doubt, even though I don't know him personally, that Jesse can be much more present now, less reliant on his phone, and have greater balance. And it's this balance that we often find ourselves striving for as entrepreneurs, this silver fish, which often we can't catch. And I discovered this the hard way on my journey to beginning to work for myself, because I've been working for myself about three months now, and it's incredibly tempting to work on my business 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and Christmas is the only day off, if I'm lucky. Now, it's no secret I want to build something big, and I would consider myself an ambitious person. But I have to say, I realize that if I keep up this work schedule, this idea that I have in my head of working all the time and letting my ambition rule my senses, then I will go insane. I'm just going to burn out. Now, there's times where I will have to prioritize different things, such as if I'm launching a product, shout out to Lunchbox. But for me, it's incredibly important to keep myself balanced by having non-negotiables that happen for me every single day. And this is my meditation, my reading, eating well, and working out. They all form the pillars of what I consider a balanced day. And by ensuring that I get most of these in every single week, 
then I can tip the scales in my favor to an equation where I'm not just happy, but my ambitions can thrive as well. Balance is overrated. Most entrepreneurs' schedules go out the window the second you try to apply a work-life balance there. Rather, harmony is kind of our solution. So Jeff Bezos, uh, the you know, relatively unknown founder of Amazon, <laughs> he talks almost exclusively about having a work-life harmony over a work-life balance. And, and this is kind of personal to us, right? We, we've, our recording schedule, even coming to subject matter, has gone out the window. We've tried to find this you know, subject matter recording balance that simply isn't sustainable. We thought we could schedule once a week, but we can't because we have busy entrepreneurial schedules on top of that that sometimes take precedence. So we adjust accordingly. But that adjustment feeds into a harmony rather than this strict work-life balance. So Bezos talks about how instead of work-life balance being two opposites, where there are two discrete factors that play against each other, instead, it's a work-life harmony where it kind of fills the same circle in which one becomes the other. To quote Bezos, if I'm happy at home, I come into the office with tremendous energy. And if I'm happy at work, I come home with tremendous energy. One feeds into the other. The entrepreneurial schedule of 100 hours a week works if you're so intrinsically valuing the work that you're doing because the work that you're doing fulfills your personal life and your personal life then fulfills the work. So it's very much a self-fulfilling prophecy. So at the end of the day, it's the harmony that we need to prioritize rather than this interesting and roundabout concept of balance. And this is something that we ended up learning the hard way with recording subject matter. Our schedule well and truly went out the window very early on. We thought that we could schedule this once a week and get into a very serious workflow. And we've just figured out that it doesn't work like that because we have priorities all over the shop. But it seems like ambition and happiness have parallel relationships to Jeff Bezos's work-life balance. It's about striking harmony between these two and not necessarily creating two things that are complete opposites. So who comes out on top in the end? It depends on your definition of success. If you're listening to this, I'm assuming you're ambitious as you're thinking for yourself. So you need to know what you're working towards and what you're trying to build. While those extrinsic factors might breed success, intrinsic ones will foster the happiness that makes that same success worthwhile. Can you fall in love with the process to live the journey you're taking rather than just the end point of your destination? There's no right answer here, but as always, where you choose to draw the line is up to you. Thanks listeners for joining episode five of Subject Matter. As always, we would love your support if you could subscribe on iTunes as well as leave a review, which would always help us with the algorithm fairies of Apple.